Thank you. I'm sure there'll be more questions ahead. Having heard about some of these methodological challenges and indeed some solutions which Gallup is proposing, um, it might be instructive to consider some of the issues really at the heart of the problem with respect to data collection. I want to talk about uh, what really motivated um, some of the projects that we've worked on to the, the challenges of gathering data around stateless populations. And, and if there's time uh, after Rajiv's presentation, I will um, share with you um, some other sort of solutions that we have been, been toying with, which is around the presentation and the compilation of mixed data sets, which relate to a, a different set of issues, but nonetheless re related to the, the subject today around uh, what we're doing in the Mediterranean, working to establish this observatory on migration protection and asylum, and where we are uh, working with uh, teams that are gathering data from search and rescue efforts to prepare maps and to inform that, that situation. But with respect to statelessness, um, <clears throat> statelessness is an issue which has been climbing up the agenda over a number of years. And this was marked in particular by a decision in November to put together a global action plan to end statelessness within, within a 10-year period. And it set a number of, of targets. Uh, this plan identified a number of actions, which included resolving existing major existing situations of statelessness, defined as non-refugee statelessness situations, uh, ensuring that no child is born stateless, uh, by ensuring that all states have provision in the nationality laws to grant nationality to children born in their territory, removing gender discrimination from nationality laws, preventing the denial or loss of deprivation of nationality, preventing statelessness in case of state succession, granting protection stateless to stateless migrants, ensuring birth registration is in place for the prevention of statelessness, issuing nationality documentation, acceding to the UN conventions, and finally improving quantitative and qualitative data on stateless populations. Now you might think the last point um, should, should dictate the way in which the UNHCR was to develop this action plan, but in fact that's, that's not the case. And in fact there are all sorts of internal inconsistencies in terms of how the data have been collected, what are the actual figures, what are the definitions that have been um, used to, to launch what is nonetheless a, a major campaign, and, and one might say that perhaps this is the sort of thing that arises when you have lawyers doing the job of social scientists and relying on um, international conventions for definitions of people rather than actually looking at experiences on the ground as a way of informing our understanding of protection, protection needs. Um, the uh, one obvious failing of the statistics that the UNHCR has pointed out is that they don't really deal with the presence of effectively stateless or de facto stateless uh, persons. Now these are sort of people that may very well need humanitarian protection um, in, 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 in many contexts. So when we look at, for example, the figure that um, was quoted, there are 60 million displaced, 20 million refugees. We're talking about the many millions of others who are neither refugees or asylum seekers, people who may not have been granted humanitarian protection, uh, but who otherwise have um, a range of statuses, but 
nonetheless need to call upon international protection agencies. And to be effectively stateless means that you cannot avail um, yourself of state protection. You may lack effective nationality. And by focusing on de facto statelessness, and refugees are de facto stateless, um, it highlights the, 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 the problem itself of tying protection to nationality status. And I think that's something which is at the core of, core of the problem here. And this is a very tricky area um, within humanitarian policy because the degree to which protection is accessed suggests perhaps a more practical understanding of the substantive rights that may be associated with nationality status and the limitations associated with both concepts of statelessness and nationality. I mean, these are, these are legal terms, as I said, but they don't necessarily adequately describe the protection needs and the context of individuals who may have actually multiple statuses. Um, one problem is clearly the identification of stateless people, and this is linked to the definition, the definitions which are derived from the conventions, the 1954 and 1961 conventions, and subsequent guidelines. So who is stateless? Who is at risk of becoming stateless? This introduces a host of additional questions, and these are questions which raise, raise practical but not insurmountable challenges. And I would suggest we need to <coughs> address them head on. And, and one way is by actually starting to ask some direct questions to UNHCR. So the UNHCR has come out with the Global Trends Report. It sets out many of the limitations with its own data set, but nonetheless replicates um, that data set in, in many instances. So for example, um, according to the UNHCR data, there is one stateless person in Brazil. <clears throat> now, Brazil is a country of 203 million. There are 12 stateless people in Colombia. This is a country which has experienced significant displacement. <laughs> there are 60 stateless people in Egypt. This is a country that's experienced considerable unrest and inflows of migrants from neighboring African states. There are 205 stateless people in the United Kingdom. This is a country which has not removed, as we are told, tens of thousands of refused asylum seekers and overstayers. So, as a social scientist, <coughs> hearing my colleagues, many of whom are lawyers, just repeat these figures, sets all sorts of alarm bells ringing. And <coughs> the immediate question is around definition and, and the reporting process. Why is it that we accept these data as reliable? How can it be that there is one stateless person in Brazil? Either the, 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 the measures used are incorrect, or the, the, the definition is of very little use to us, certainly from the perspective of, of protection. As one looks deeper, you find that there's further fragmentary data which again illustrates the limitations of the analysis put forward. So for example, there are a host of countries in Africa, Cote d'Ivoire, Kenya, Democratic Republic of Congo, Eritrea, Ethiopia, Madagascar, South Africa, and Zimbabwe, where <clears throat> the UNHCR won't offer statistics for them, but says there are more than 10,000 stateless people in these countries. Um, now, those of us trained in social sciences and demography and rest might nonetheless ask, okay, well, is it not possible to arrive at some better estimate um, rather than grouping together a, a number of countries? 
Um, is there a way, for example, as Andy has suggested, that there are additional methodologies which can <coughs> be adjusted? Um, or should we then actually return to UNHCR and say, well, perhaps you should simply say that there's a sizable population of stateless people, but the actual numbers are unknown. Well, no, we know that figures are not only contentious, figures are central to all sorts of other imperatives, operational, institutional, budgetary, and the like. So why is it these figures are being presented? We have no persuasive evidence that <coughs> UNHCR is able to offer authoritative population estimates here. And then we also see significant underreporting in other parts of the world where there is a presence. So for example, um, in the Dominican Republic, where um, we're told that there are a number of people who are stateless of Haitian descent. Um, at various points, this number has been presented as 210,000 when there was a proposed change in the nationality laws in the Dominican Republic, this number was projected to, to drop significantly. Uh, again, there was just this, this play between numbers and, and definitions. But there is a mention of birth rates, but there's still no attempt to turn to demographic methods to arrive at a better estimate. For example, by interrogating demographic data by international agencies, the sort of things that we might look for, birth rate, life expectancy, mortality rates, out-migration, and use that to inform other calculations. Um, instead, we're actually told there's this authoritative figure of 210,000, but we still don't know what, what the actual, or even ballpark figures might look like. And then when we look at Asia Pacific, we're told, well, most of the world's stateless populations live there. Well, most of the world's population actually lives in the Asia Pacific, uh, Asia -Pacific region. Data are provided for six out of 15 states. But again, we're told that um, there are countries that have populations over 10,000, and a number are listed, and the data are better in some cases than others. For example, in Myanmar, where we know there's sort of a legacy of people who've been denied citizenship who are geographically um, confined, or rather they're represented in particular areas. But nonetheless, these, these data are incomplete. Um, and then when we look at, at Europe, that's again uh, a situation where definitional uh, problems come, come to the fore. So there's very little discussion around the nature of statelessness. So even though we're told that there are about 600,000 stateless people in Europe, they're largely in the former, um, former Soviet Union, principally in the Baltic states, they're largely ethnic Russian speakers. Nonetheless, <clears throat> we know that there are people there who enjoy a very secure legal status. They have a wide range of rights, many of which are on a part of nationals. They may not um, hold the right to vote or stand for election, but nonetheless may be able to vote in some elections, like the European Parliament election. Um, how does this category of stateless person differ from the stateless person in the Dominican Republic or Cote d'Ivoire? These qualitative assessments are not offered in, in any way. Um, what we've suggested is that the task of estimating stateless populations is, is particularly complex and it requires multiple methodologies. Um, the UNHCR has sponsored a number of mapping exercises, what it calls mapping exercises. I 
think only two were actually conducted by, by demographers or people with training in social sciences. Many were carried out by lawyers. Um, and again, there are questions around the definition of statelessness. So as I've suggested, if the de definition is too narrow, it's not particularly informative. Um, so one stateless person in Brazil, if it's too large, then it risks becoming too <laughs> inclusive at the expense of any meaningful analysis. So what we've suggested is that one way to address these pitfalls is to use um, a series of sort of tiered definitions. So we might consider people who are stateless under UNHCR's mandate, people who are covered by under other UN uh, mandates, and people who are, say, effectively stateless who cannot call upon the protection of any state and start to, to break it down. And then what we might do is look at the emerging literature to frame the inquiry and define terms uh, accordingly. And what we've suggested is that there are a number of demographic approaches that one might take to build a much more comprehensive picture. Um, first of all, interrogating UNHCR about how it collects its data, their data, and what categories of people are included, what definitions are used. Um, what do we know about these countries where apparently there are more than 10,000 people but we don't really know much? Who are captured in the data? Um, that is absolutely essential if we're going to develop specific humanitarian and protection-based strategies. Um, we've suggested that there are a number of causal typologies for statelessness which one could use to inform the design of these methodologies. So looking at the causes of statelessness, looking at formal nationality, stateless, uh, nationality status, and also um, putting forward an evaluative concept which assesses the degree to which individuals enjoy their rights as enumerated under international law. Um, and then if we're talking about specific regions, whether it's the former Soviet Union or Sudan now, let's say, where we've seen um, state succession or defederation, then there's perhaps a subset of methodological approaches to consider. So one might want to look at rates of naturalization. Um, and then one might similarly want to adjust estimates based on average age, life expectancy, uh, the sort of data that are easily available from national statistics. And recognizing that under stable conditions, um, and in states where nationalities have been amended, then numbers will decline. So, um, <clears throat> when adjusting also for population estimates, we've suggested, and this is where um, our work with Rajith, Rajith's work in particular, is, particular is, is especially important, is looking at the interplay of other factors. So, we've suggested, for example, that the deprivation of nationality reduces quality of health. If that is so, and we maintain it is, and we publish to that effect, that there is a, a very strong link between deprivation of nationality and health status, a quality of health, then surely that should inform life expectancy. And then there are other bodies of literature one might turn to to demonstrate how both inferior mental and physical health reduces life expectancy. So perhaps we can think about developing a set of metrics to adjust for the impact of statelessness on life expectancy and, and building that in. And then there's the question of the relationship between migration and statelessness, and this is something which takes us closer to discussions around Syria, long-term issues there as well. Um, 
what is the status of migrant populations whose nationality status may have lapsed or may be at risk of lapsing. So we need this contextual information, um, both in terms of country of origin, country destination for the um, selected migrant groups, in effect mapping uh, across nationality statuses um, to ensure that people are not necessarily left out. Um, and then there's the question of the impact of statelessness on states. Much of the focus has been on adherence to international norms. And while there may be a certain a reputational cost to states if they don't abide by legal norms, and I think such costs are, are getting lower and lower, there are also material costs which should be more clearly extrapolated. And that's where um, the work of the Humanitarian Innovation Project, the work that Alex has been doing with colleagues here, is particularly important. <coughs> so we're demonstrating how refugees may constitute an economic benefit to, to host states. Um, what we suggest is while states people may not be refugees, the approach put forward by, um, by the Humanitarian Innovation Project demonstrates how social science research can inform wider arguments and offer glimpses into methodologies that still could be applied um, to, to further clarify both the situation, vulnerability, and implications of, of statelessness. And then another option to consider um, is applying some of the albeit complex approaches used by insurance companies to arrive at estimates of lost earnings, lost productivity, which can inform a new inquiry on potential tax revenue lost. Why is this important? Well, because in terms of taking the case forward, making the argument that UNHCR seeks to make, taking this onto national and international agendas, um, <clears throat> clearly the potential loss of revenue is something that speaks to the interests of states. Um, this would require some sampling of local economic data. It would be difficult, but not impossible. And we're suggesting that this would um, this would certainly help to inform our understanding both of statelessness, its effects, and, and perhaps press for better systems of data collection at the, at the national level. Um, to do so, however, I think we need to take some of the thunder away from, from my legal colleagues. I say this as, as a deputy dean of a law school, but actually working more with um, demographers and social scientists who have a much better handle on how methodologies can be designed. And one way might be to start with some um, national case studies which can be used to develop a much more sophisticated set of methodologies um, to interrogate national data, both through desk research, interviews with staff in national statistical agencies, census bureaus, to get a much better understanding of who is covered and how they are approached. Um, such an investigation would expose the diversity of methodologies used, which would in turn inform the UNHCR data set. It might highlight both the strengths and weaknesses, uh, or say weaknesses and potential strengths. Uh, but such information would certainly be valuable to UNHCR, be valuable to researchers, civil society <coughs> actors, and those who are actively involved in what is a human rights campaign to reduce statelessness. Um, so what we're suggesting is that if it is possible to identify reliable national data sources, 
then perhaps there's a way of moving forward to reconstruct methodologies for estimating stateless populations and take into consideration the points which, which I've made above. And, and with that, I'll turn to Rajith, who can tell you much more about how we sought to collect data uh, on stateless populations and use this to inform the uh, UNHCR effort.